Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, Doncaster. How are you? I am fine. It's all fine, my end. How is it with you? How's it on the campaign trail? It's fine. It's just um, lots of knocking on doors. I, I, I do think, I was thinking this week, I mean, that's your kind of ideal thing, isn't it, canvassing? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, is, it is your room 101, isn't it? It is. It's just the, 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 the small talk, the conversations. Let, let me give you a hypothetical. Yeah. What if you knocked on my door? I answer the door. I've got a plunger in my hand. I say I've got quite a bad blockage, but if you can come and sort it out, I'll vote for you. Would 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 you would you take up that challenge? Well, you're not allowed to treat the electorate, so you're not allowed <laughs> to go and buy stuff for the electorate. Understandably, but I'm not sure whether I mean maybe the listeners could tell us whether sorting out your block doodars uh, counts as treating or not. That is very interesting. So so you couldn't turn up with, uh, a, for, for argument's sake, a, a tin of Quality Street and say you can have one of these if you vote for me? No, for for, for obvious and understandable reasons. Obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't know if there was a cut-off point. Well, let's see whether the plunger counts. <laughs> I did sort of semi-mow this lady's lawn in 2017, but I, I, I think my lawn mowing is sufficiently bad that I don't think anyone could claim it was treating. I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to see you in charge of a lawnmower. No, it was sort of a it was a kind of brief sojourn with the lawnmower, which sort of it definitely didn't sort of add anything to the to the sort of lawn situation. How often does it happen that you knock on the door and somebody says, "Oh, we've just sat down for tea. Do you want some?" Actually, funnily, you should say that because I got invited in for a glass of wine the other night. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Some four very nice people invited me for. She, I, I knocked on the door. She opened actually the window to say. Uh, to talk to me and then later she came back running down the street a bit later on and said do you want to come in for a glass of wine i think you're allowed to be treated by the electorate you just can't treat the electorate right you know right right and and uh, and what percentage of people whose door do you knock on straight away ask for a selfie some but um yeah yeah some uh but the glass of wine was nice and actually some chocolates two very nice people said to me um this was uh today's sunday this was yesterday it was the last door i knocked on um it was quite a difficult house to work out where the entrance was so i went in uh had a nice chat with them they invited me in despite my muddy feet as it was raining and uh well we all know you've got previous with not taking your shoes off yes <laughs> yes indeed i actually think your training of me has been quite good in this <laughs> seriously and they she offered me sort of twixes and you know like mini twixes and all that for my for my fellow party workers, which is extremely nice of them. What about dogs? I mean, it's a it's a hazard of the job if you're a postman. Is that the same if you're canvassing? I really hate to say this, but there's, <laughs> there's one lady, one of my members actually, I'm afraid had a, quite a serious injury with a dog in 2010. And I spoke to her just at the beginning of the campaign. And she's, I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's sort of healed, but it isn't, it, I, I think it is, it hasn't been great really. Oh God! So that that is a that is a very real and pl- present danger when you. Yeah, I mean, you just there's a, actually what the thing is you you when you're putting something through the letterbox, I think that's more of a danger with the dog. Right. Don't, you know, sometimes if you you mustn't put your hand through, because if you put your hand through, you might lose your hand, if you, or lose a bit of your hand, mm-hmm. or get bitten. But there are these things that post postmen and women have, which is to push the sort of thing through the door with like a stick thing, mm. which we haven't quite we haven't quite got to that. The dogs are okay, but there are, some, there are often very, very sweet dogs, actually. 
You'd like the dogs part of it. I, w- I would. That is the part of me that I'd like the best. This is an interesting question. What if you were to take a supply of sausages to ward off angry dogs? Would that count as treating? I think so. Right, so you can't... Any kind of gift to, you know, humans or canines or felines or any any hamsters, you know, sort of, I don't know, you know, parrots or anything. I just think <laughs> you've got a bird seed. I think you've just got to, you've got to sort of steer off those things. Uh, it's good good to know that you're abiding by the uh, by the rules and regulations. Yeah. Um, shall I tell you what we're going to be talking about this week? Yeah, go on. We're talking about whether this is the UK's first climate election. Ah. So there's a number of ideas around climate that we've talked about on the podcast, and they've risen up on the political agenda over the last 12 months. And I think this is exciting. A quarter of people now cite the environment as one of the top three issues facing the country. Yep. Yep. Uh, it's three times that as many as during the 2017 election. Polls show that more than half of people say that climate policy will influence how they'll vote in the election. It's even starker if you look at it uh, amongst young people. Three quarters of voters under 25 say it will influence their vote. And for the first time, all the major parties that are emphasising their env- environmental policies during the election from Labour's Green Industrial Revolution uh, to the Conservatives who have pledges on fracking and renewable energy. Uh, Now, there are, of course, key differences between the parties and the election could determine who governs for half of the decade that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, says that we have left to tackle the climate emergency. So I'm going to be talking to climate historian Alice Bell and a colleague of yours, Ed, um, Green New Deal UK campaigner, Fatima Zara Ibrahim um, about whether climate is playing a bigger role in this election than, than in the past and how to keep momentum up on the issue during the campaign and then I will be talking to climate expert from Canada Catherine Abreu and Canada also just had an election described as its first climate election so I'm going to be asking her about what happened in that campaign. Have you had any sort of conversations about I've- it? I've got to say, the, I feel like the, the show is in safe hands in my absence. I'm not sure you need me. Oh, we do, desperately, desperately. Yeah, well, I was hoping you'd say that. I'm floundering uh, like uh, an upturned uh, turtle washed up on the shore. I, I was hoping you'd say that. I mean, that was just sort of fishing for compliments, <laughs> really. Uh, but it, but it, that good, good subject. Yeah, yeah. And then um, uh, Jen Brister, who I think we last saw at Latitude. Uh, yes. She's going to be coming back, uh, come, coming back on to talk about how the election has been for her this week. What's your reason to be cheerful then? My reason to be cheerful is is vicarious. My wife tomorrow night is taking part in something called a musical, and this is a, a sort of a, a, a night where comedians sing songs from the shows. And honestly, Ed, I've been like a pushy stage mother. I've been coaching her on choice of song. I've been, you know, making sure that it's in the right key for her. Um, I'm, I don't know what it's brought out in me, but it's brought out some kind of desire that she will be better than the, all the other ones. And I've become quite obsessive about it. And she doesn't know this because she doesn't like me to go along when she does these things. But I've secretly bought a ticket and arranged a babysitter just so, I can, go, just so I can go and watch the performance. So that's mine. I'll, I'll report back on it this time next week. So let's talk about yours then. I'm guessing you've been very busy uh, in Doncaster North this week. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what mine is. And I think I, I should have mentioned it last week. The community response to the floods in Doncaster has been absolutely extraordinary. I mean, but you know, there's flooding in different parts of Doncaster North uh, and, and indeed across Doncaster, but mainly focused on Doncaster North and the, the community I mean, the community response has been absolutely astonishing, uh, just in terms of community cleanups, supply of goods, people sort of working their socks off to provide food, clothing. I mean, honestly, you've probably seen some of it on social media, but people have just absolutely gone the extra, extra, extra mile. And not just people from Doncaster, by the way, because this election in the middle of November and culminating in December, let's be honest, it's not the best time for an election. Um, but I just think there's something, something very, very uplifting about it. That's great to hear. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. With me are Alice Bell, who is co-director of the climate campaign Possible and author of an upcoming book on the history of climate change, and Fatima Ibrahim, who's co-founder of Green New Deal UK. Hello both. Hi. Um, let's talk about this phrase, climate election. So is 
is this going to be the climate election? And perhaps more importantly, like, what is it at stake? Why should it be the climate election? I think it should be the climate election. And it's shaping up to potentially be the climate election. Um, one of the things that's happened in the last couple of days, just last night, actually, Channel 4 announcing the first climate leaders debate. And the reason it's important for us that this is a climate election is because the science tells us that we have 10 years to radically reduce our emissions if we want to avoid the worst effects of climate change. The next government is going to be in for half that time. So it's incredibly important that we see beyond sort of the immediate sort of things that want to take priority and see this as a government that's going to govern us through one of the biggest, if not the biggest, crisis facing humanity right now. And and no no party other than the Greens, I don't think, is saying net zero by 2030. So, I mean, what what, what is the difference between the main parties that people are going to be voting for? So Labour have just come out with uh, an incredible transformational manifesto. Um, actually, probably one of the most transformational manifestos that we've seen by any major party in a major economy. Specifically on green issues. On, on green issues, but I think we need to see green issues as not just sort of purely environmental. What we're seeing now is climate in the context of an economy that's not working for people and how we change that economy to put people and planet first. If you're looking at it at that lens, you look at the Labour Manifesto and see how incredibly transformational it is in order for us to create a new society where people are, you know, there's a more just more justice it's more equitable but also we are living within planetary boundaries and alice you're also seeing this big spread uh, this big difference between the main parties on this at the time of recording we haven't seen the tory manifesto yet um so i don't know what the conservatives are going to say i think they probably will come up with quite a lot across climate and nature so there'll be some biodiversity stuff i imagine may well be things to do with ocean health in there also the lib dems have had lib dems have uh, done something labor has not done which have talked about a frequent flyer levy uh something that labor seem to have decided to avoid having that argument right now uh perhaps because i you know in discussions within Labour, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, they've got quite a lot they've they've said too. Um, so I think what we're seeing is across the board, politicians really being keen to talk about climate change. Even even the Brexit party saying they're going to plant some trees. They, I mean, yeah, I think they have this limited amount of, uh, of detail on what they do. They don't, it just seem to be just the trees. Um, but yeah, I think we're seeing, I think, and that is reflecting sort of the larger thing behind the question you asked about, is this a climate election? As Fatima says, it has to be. But also, the UK public are recognising that for the first time in a long time, and I think more than they have done previously. So p- politicians want to talk about it because they know they can st- can- the constituents want to talk about it. And we've known for a long time, there's research um, into UK politicians that lots of MPs want to talk about climate change, know that they need to act, feel that morally they should do, but don't think that they're... Uh, the voters want them to. Don't think the constituents want them to. And now that's shifted. Well, let's let's year. let's talk about that. Where where are the public at on this? So, you know, I, I think like it or not, Brexit is this major issue and perhaps the top priority for for a lot of voters. But where do climate issues sit? Uh, and perhaps talk us through the different age groups and types of voter as well. So we know from the two bits of polling, I think the most significant that happened in October, one was some that was commissioned by Client Earth. Um, and that said that a bit over half of people over 18 would say that climate change will be a factor in how they vote in the election. And if you take out just 18 to 25s in that, it raises to about three quarters. So it's pretty major. So that's showing that people are at least saying that they know, that they're saying that that they think that climate change will be a factor in, in how they vote. I think that that might even be higher if you did that now. And I think if you ask people after the climate strike on the 29th, it might be higher still because kids are going to be coming home after the strike talking about it with their families. Um, the other thing that's another bit of interesting polling comes from Ipsos, again from October, and they ask, regularly ask the question of what are the most important issues uh, facing Britain today? And one of the things we've seen in the last year is climate change rick- ricocheting up that chart um it's always been something that people in the uk care about but the last year it's sort of hit that top five and it's currently fourth so brexit is top about a bit over 60 percent of people say that and we've got health which is about 34 i think then we've got crime about 25 and then it's environment and pollution and it's partly phrased as environment and pollution because they've been tracking this for years and this is the highest it's been since 1990 so the interesting thing one of the interesting things about that is it was this high in 1990 <laughs> um 
this um, is was not this was back when Friends of the Earth were a huge thing? I'm trying to remember what the circumstances were. Oh, I in think I think my colleagues at Friends of the Earth would say that they're still a huge thing. No, but I mean, you would hear about them all, all the yeah, all I the think, time. In sort of 1990. I think 1990 would be a very different context of other issues around it. So one of the interesting things about people people in climate change really like to track track this poll because they're like determined to see where environment's going to hit that sort of salience of being in the top five. One of the things that I really noticed is sort of climate change really swapped with immigration. So the last few years, immigration has gone really high. It's now dropped. It's like a half of half of the number of people who say uh, environment say immigration, whereas it was during sort of the Brexit referendum much higher. So we see these things shift. And I, I don't know what the other things were sort of around the environment pollution question in 1990. Certainly we had um, Thatcher talking about climate change in 89. Um, so climate change was part of that. This isn't something that's that, you know, that new. Uh, but there also would have been CFCs and that hole right, in the ozone yeah, yeah, there, yeah. which people who are old enough to remember the hole in the ozone That's there. Right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, aerosols, yeah. And and what about, um, wh- where are the public, Fatima, on the idea that the, the climate crisis needs to be tackled by this restructuring of the economy and, and the, the, the way we shape society, the, all the kind of work that you've done around the Green New Deal? Yeah, so I think this year, as Alice said, has been an unprecedented year for climate action and public concern about climate change. What I'm seeing is the conversation changing about how people understand climate. And what we're seeing is people refer to climate justice a lot more. I think one of the most shocking things was watching the news the day of the climate strikes and watching the six o'clock news and the news anchor saying climate justice, which was incredible because... For a long time, we were even battling uh, the news and the BBC to talk about climate change. And now they were taking a very progressive sort of look at the climate crisis and how it needs to center justice and how right now the climate crisis is fueled by inequality. The cl- climate strikers have done an incredible job of centering that. And they've been talking about the need for economic change. For a long time, we saw system change, not climate change in a few placards here and there and climate marches, but not really getting a sense of how these two things are linked. What the Green New Deal, um, the conversation the Green New Deal has started is by recognizing that we're facing two crises, the climate crisis and the inequality crisis. This reframes it and says, actually, as the Yellow Vest said uh, in France, the end of the month, end of the year, same fight, same perpetrators. Is there any resistance from a type of conservative voter who wouldn't dispute the science but they might see the green new deal as some kind of trojan horse for a bunch of left-wing ideas yeah i mean there was polling recently i mean i I was reading in the guardian about the date 2030 and whether people support a green new deal and the green new deal was framed as um mass public investment in infrastructure and public services and a large majority of conservative voters actually supported 2030 and 63 percent of the public agreed that we needed a Green New Deal, maybe not in term, but at least in its description. So I do think people are starting to realize that we need a solution that matches the scale of the crisis we face and are becoming a lot more wiser to the sort of tinkering around the edges solutions of let's recycle more, let's stop plastics, let's plant a few trees. I think they get that those are solutions don't amount to the scale that is needed to fight the crisis that we're facing. And as someone who's done a lot of research and is writing about the the history of the, the sort of climate change movement, what what have been the milestones to get people there? Milestones. Um, was it David Cameron hugging uh, no, hugging a husky? Not, I wouldn't say that's probably high on the list of international <laughs> icons. Um, I mean, I think we've, we've sort of been gro- gradually discovering climate change since kind of the 1830s. It sort of became a bit more of a thing in the sort of 1950s onwards. And we've seen waves of public interest in it, I think, every sort of 10 years, really, since the, the 50s. Um, and they've sort of grown with ever more increasing levels of intensity. And I think part of that is because of events. It's because of things where we can all come together and see something like I think the school strikes have really felt like something that's a real cultural thing that lots of us are involved in it's not just something that's niche people are all involved in David Attenborough documentaries similarly not just the one that happened this year but 10 years ago um uh, big UN conferences, speeches by people. But it's also just that, you know, when the interest in climate change started to raise again in the last year or so, uh, for you can be quite old now and still be sort of minorly freaking out about climate change your entire life. 
Um, you know, you probably learned about it at school if you're, you know, under 40 or so. Uh, and people who were over that age have still been worrying about it a long time. And so I think with every time it comes back to us, it's sort of, we go, oh, yeah, we really shouldn't have let it drop that time. And, you know, we're now looking at young people taking to the streets and going, yeah, that's exactly how I felt when I was 14. I'm so glad that they're able to find each other and network and freak out together and inspire us to do that because I didn't feel like I could do that as that age. Uh, let's join them and build them. And so, yeah, I, I don't think we've really, I don't think it's really milestones is the thing. It's more kind of waves and it's sort of picking up steam as it right. goes. Fatima, let's talk about Green New Deal UK. We have covered it a lot on the podcast in the past, but just in case we've got a new listener, um, what what are the ideas in it? And in terms of the general election, where are we up to? Is is it primarily stuff that has been adopted now by the Labour Party or have elements of it been incorporated by the other parties? So just a brief history. Um, about a decade ago in the UK, the idea of a Green New Deal was sort of coined by a few eco- economists, campaigners, MPs like Caroline Lucas as a sort of idea to transform our economy, to face the climate crisis, to build a better society. At that point, the financial crash happened and austerity and the idea wasn't picked up. After the US elections, we saw a, a young woman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the US, pick up this idea of a Green New Deal supported by the Sunrise Movement, which is a youth climate movement in the US, and popularized it. And it gained massive momentum. At the start of this year, campaigners started coming together and saying, we need to kind of bring this idea home uh, and get a Green New Deal campaign that is essentially about getting a government who leads this transformation and mobilization of resources over the course of 10 years to radically transform our economy, pump money into infrastructure and public investment and trigger a renewable energy revolution, essentially. And Green New Deal UK was kind of born out of that uh, and includes the youth strikers who have adopted a Green New Deal as one of their key demands in the big strike in September. They were calling for a Green New Deal. Another part of Green New Deal UK is the Labour for a Green New Deal movement, who were a bunch of Labour campaigners who decided that this was going to be the thing that their party was going to pick up and started a massive campaign to get local Labour um, CLPs to pick this up and take this motion to conference where it was passed. And now we have a Labour Party manifesto where a Green New Deal is one of the things that they mentioned. The Green Party have had a Green New Deal in their manifesto for about a decade. So we have two parties going into this election that are leading with a Green New Deal as part of their platform. What we're doing is, A, I think our job is threefold. One, to make this a climate election. Like more than anything, we need the conversation of climate to be front and center and for people to, when they're voting, be prioritizing climate. The second is to socialize the idea of a Green New Deal and start making this link that it isn't just any climate action we want. We want something that's transformational and that is a Green New Deal. And then the third is, if we're being real, if we want to get a Green New Deal, it has to be really at this point a progressive government, which is going to be some form of a labor-led government. Um, what that practically means on a constituency level is supporting candidates who are centering a Green New Deal, and that's what we're doing, that are being vocal about a Green New Deal because we want a grouping of MPs in Parliament who are going to make this their thing, and then asking voters to consider a Green New Deal when they're voting at the at constituency level, and that is their decision to see who's on the ballot and what makes sense in their constituency in terms of voting to get a progressive government and a government on December 13th that will lead a Green New Deal revolution. Is is the climate a less, it seems to me, a, a less divisive issue generally in this country than in some others? Where do we sit? I mean, in, in the States, for example, you still hear a lot of scepticism around the science. That argument seems to be seems to have been won here. Well, if people sometimes say that climate scepticism is a problem of the English-speaking world, and we've somehow managed to escape the worst of it, I think partly because we're actually a lot more European than we always admit. But also, there are other things to, to bear in mind. I think the fact that quite a lot of the very early political climate leadership in the UK was was Margaret Thatcher, has some of it. And so there are lots of members of the Conservative Party who still see her as, you know, a kind of icon of environmental action. Um, and see, I think we've also, if you look at kind of green, the green movement more broadly, um, with often with some of its problems, it has been 
one that has sat actually quite comfortably with the right wing. And uh, if you look at kind of the history of WWF and some of the older conservation movements, um, they often do things that interest and appeal to the left, but also do things that very much sit within kind of traditional conservative values. Um, I think it's quite easy to be a large C conservative and to be quite great green in a broad sense. Uh, and climate change can sit within that. Uh, another thing to remember is that climate scepticism is actually quite a recent thing everywhere. So, I mean, again, with environmentalism, in, even in the States, like in, people often say Nixon was a very green uh, president, actually, if you look at legislation he put forward. Um you see people acting against climate change as an issue or about against the idea of cutting carbon emissions from kind of uh, Reagan onwards. And then you see a bit of it around that. You see climate scepticism really mobilising in the late 80s, early 90s, when they could see things like the UN moving together to build things like the big UN climate talks that we have now. Um, and then there was another big burst in the noughties. So if you look at, uh, there was some research, I think it was the New York Times that did this. It was one of the American newspapers a couple of years ago. They looked at rhetoric of uh, Republican candidates and presidential candidates in the last 10 to 20 years. And they really see a notice of the difference from the early noughties. And you see a, a kind of push on climate scepticism funding that. And now you do have a much more divided space. So we just haven't really have an opportunity for the climate sceptics to spread. It may be that they're now looking at Britain and going post-Brexit, ha, rubbing their fingers together. Right. And it might be that we see some strategic investment in building more climate scepticism in the next few years. Uh, but so far, we've largely escaped it, I think. I think that's why we need to celebrate. And the fir- whenever I'm speaking publicly, the first thing I do is celebrate that in this country, we have a climate consensus mostly. Mm. And I think that is something for us to celebrate. And a lot of work has gone into that. But across the political spectrum, we're not having this debate about whether climate change exists or not, or why it was caused. It's just solutions focused. What do we actually need to do in order to face it? And I think that that is something that we should all be really happy about and excited about. We mentioned the the TV debate, the climate-specific TV debate uh, earlier. Uh, as, as I understand it, at the moment, as we're recording this, Boris Johnson won't be taking part in. He just hasn't that. said he will yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, now this debate may well have happened by the time you're you're listening to this. But I mean, what would you like to see in in that debate? What would you like to see the public? take away from it well i really want to see all the leaders i really hope boris joins um and all our leaders uh people who want to be prime minister sitting there and having to answer questions about climate and nature and see what their plan is as fatima said this is this has to be the climate election this moment in time is crucial not just for the future of our nation but humanity and it sounds like hyperbole but it's not it really really is and so we need to know what they think about that um but this also there's another side to it is that i really want to see people not just listen to what the leaders want to say, but talk to each other because these sorts of debates have become kind of water cooler moments. You go into work the next day and you talk about it. I want families to sit around on the sofa and have a kind of goggle box chat about it. I really want like you strikers not to have a watching party with other you strikers, but to sit at home or go around to their grannies or go around to their annoying Uncle Nigel's and watch it, you know, have an intergenerational conversation about it. It has that opportunity to help have some of the larger public debates that we need to have. So a couple of months ago um, in the US, they had their first um, climate town hall. So in comparison to 2016, where climate got one minute across the entire presidential race of debate time, they actually had seven hours in the Democratic race where they questioned each candidate extensively. And I think one of the things that came out of that is you almost had a I hate to use this term, like an arms race for innovation on climate and what we could be doing and like each candidate wanting to up the other candidate and like getting some really transformational ideas and a large majority, not a large majority, five of them, I think at present are actually saying they're standing on a Green New Deal platform. And that's what it does by opening up a space. It almost opens up this competition to win um, public imagination and also convince people that they are the candidate that will be the best candidate to face this. And I think, I hope our debate does the same, where it creates a playing field where people take this action, take this opportunity seriously and see that watchers at home really want to see who is going to be the person that can lead the country through this. And as an effect, sort of brings new ideas into the public debate. 
Uh, Fatima, just to finish, for anyone who's listening to this and thinks, I, I, I want to make sure that climate policy is, is a key issue as this campaign continues and comes to an end. How can they get involved with your campaigns to, 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 to help enable that? Totally. Um, please check us out on greennewdealuk.org or on Twitter. And we actually have a day of action that's happening on the 7th of December to make this a huge climate issue. And we'll be out and about trying to do all sorts of stuff um, to make sure that a Green New Deal is something that's um, being discussed and climate is uh, at the top of the agenda. But also just like go to your local hustings, ask climate questions, go try and find your local candidate, make sure you're asking them climate questions and engage in the debate that way. And then most importantly, when you're at the ballot box, consider voting for climate, whatever that might look like in your constituency. Can I do a plug as well? Please do. (laughs) Because there's lots of other ways that people can and should uh, work with with their friends and families and other communities to take action on climate change other than just thinking about voting and uh, we at Possible try and create and share those so if you're looking for things you can do to take action on climate change maybe it's a New Year's resolution that you want to do more check out wearepossible.org because we have a plethora of things you can do because uh, voting is incredibly powerful but it's not the only thing and we need we ba- we're at a point where we need to do all of the things all of the times in all of the ways Alright Alice Bell Fatima Ibrahim thank you so much Thank you Thank you I'm going to speak now to Catherine Abreu, who is Executive Director of Climate Action Network in Canada. Uh, Hello, Catherine. Thanks for coming on and talking to us. And the first thing that I'd like to ask you about is that the the recent election in Canada, it's been widely described as its first climate election. And can you talk to me a little bit about why that was and how it compares to the one you had a couple of years ago? Hi, great to be with you. Um, Yeah, it it was indeed Canada's first climate election. And the reason we're talking about it that way is because in an election that was otherwise characterized by a lot of mudslinging and name calling, climate was consistently the policy issue that kind of rose through the fray in conversations and debates between leaders and in media coverage. It's also the first time that climate stayed not just within the top 10 or five, but at the top three of issues on voters' minds as they were heading to the polls. And we consistently heard in exit polling that climate platforms were one of the um, things that voters had based their votes on. And indeed, 63% of voters cast ballots for parties with strong climate plans. And I think why that was, why we saw that kind of difference from previous elections in Canada is a variety of reasons. Number one, climate has been a key topic of conversation and a source of real polarization in Canada in recent years. Number two, we're seeing escalating climate impacts around the world and in Canada, that's true as it is everywhere else. And three, the kinds of mobilizations around climate action that we saw through September in the lead up to the October 21st election, um, I think played a huge role in keeping this front and centre in Canadians' minds. And can you talk to me a little bit about the polarisation? Do you have the same scepticism we see in your neighbours to the south? Or is it is it more a case of... Like, like it is in a lot of European countries now where the consensus is there about the climate crisis. The discussion is all around the the, the, the speed at which things need to change. Uh, as I think is kind of often the case for Canada, we're a little bit in between. Right. So we don't have the kind of skepticism of the science that we see characterizing politicians in the U.S. The majority of Canadians accept that climate change is happening. But the real question is how we tackle climate change while continuing to have a prosperous economy that creates good jobs. And Canada's has always been a natural resource dependent economy that is really oriented toward export of those natural resources. And right now, a lot of those natural resources that we're harvesting are oil and gas reserves, uh, and we're exporting those to the world. And so this conversation about what we do to address the large and growing emissions from our oil and gas sector while protecting workers is one that kind of drives a lot of emotional controversy in Canada and can sometimes pit those workers against climate action uh, for the sake of scoring cheap political points. 
We should talk for a couple of minutes about Justin Trudeau and his record on environmental issues. And I believe there are two sides to this. And firstly, in the positive column, there's this carbon tax, which is about taxing fuels according to their emissions. This has been quite divisive, I know. Um, Can you explain a little about it and then maybe tell us about whether the Conservatives tried to weaponise this in the election campaign? Yeah. In 2015, the Trudeau government came in after about a decade of uh, the Harper government, which had been fairly disinterested in climate action. And within a year, they had developed this something called the Pan-Canadian Framework on Climate Change and Clean Growth, which is probably the most comprehensive climate plan that Canada has ever seen. It has over 50 policies in it, but the one that gets the most attention is carbon pricing. And a lot of conservative premiers of provinces uh, banded together to push back against the federal implementation of that carbon price. And so during the election and in the lead up to the conservative uh, opposition um, to the liberal, the governing liberal party really made um, the carbon pricing uh, one of the things that they used most strongly to call out the Liberal government to say that they were not on the side of Canadians to suggest that, you know, they were just raising prices and using carbon pricing um, to hurt jobs. When, in fact, the carbon price is designed to actually return any revenue generated to the provinces and the people where it was generated. So it's a revenue neutral carbon price. Um, But it worked and it was very salient narrative where we had this carbon price kind of standing in for climate policies writ large in Canada and um, uh, the potential for the expansion of a pipeline called Trans Mountain, uh, an oil pipeline standing in for economic growth in Canada. And so we heard constantly about this carbon pricing versus pipelines debate and this choice that Canadians had to make. Yeah, because this is the uh, the other side of it, isn't it? This is in the negative column on Justin Trudeau's record on uh, climate issues. This is the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Yeah, that's right. So oil and gas represents the largest and fastest growing single source of emissions in Canada. We have this issue in Canadian politics where even those politicians who are committed to putting forward ambitious climate policies uh, remain wed to this idea of expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. And, you know, a lot of Canadians who care deeply about climate change see a contradiction there, one that's quite frustrating. But a lot of Canadians who are concerned about the economic uh, future of Canada and are perhaps employed in the oil and gas sector or have family members who are um, see the ongoing investment in fossil fuel infrastructure like pipelines as essential to protect Canadians and workers. And indeed, Trudeau's, Trudeau's government bought that Trans Mountain Pipeline last year, actually nationalized it to the tune of several billion dollars. Uh, and a lot of people are asking, why wouldn't you use that huge investment and put it into the solution rather into continuing to grow the problem? And, and on, the, um, on the, the carbon tax, w- was the argument won over the course of the election? That's a great question. And I, you know, I... I think it was certainly um, softened. So we saw directly on the heels of the election, um, a couple of the premiers who had previously uh, uh, stood staunchly opposed to the carbon price, accepting the election results as uh, Canadians, you know, buying into the carbon pricing system. So, you know, we have some softening around um, the opposition to carbon pricing politically. And and we've seen now that the carbon price has made it through a kind of electoral, uh, a sort of electoral reform. And so um, it will continue. What I'm feeling pretty relieved by, to be honest, as a climate advocate is I think this election has helped us move away from carbon pricing being that stand-in for all climate policy because it's about more than carbon pricing and 
as long as we were only talking about this one tool, we were missing the opportunity to think through other climate policies that might have knock-on benefits like public transportation. Um, So I'm kind of excited about that, that now we get to talk about things other than carbon pricing. So we've covered how Justin Trudeau fended off the Conservative Party and the, the right on this, but I'm very interested in the parties to the left of his Liberal Party? Did the debate from the progressive side, such as the NDP, the New Democratic Party and the Greens, did that shift his position on climate policies? That's a great question. And it's my read that uh, the Liberals did indeed have to um, respond to that. So we saw this was the first time in, in Canadian election history that every party, every major federal party, felt pressured to deliver a climate platform and they all kind of unveiled their climate platforms in in big flashy announcements the unveiling of the ndp and green party platforms came well before the unveiling of the liberal party platform and uh they were so ambitious that when the liberal party platform did come out um it went much farther than I was expecting it to. So we saw that really ambitious commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. We saw the promise of a Just Transition Act. And I think that those elements, along with some of the commitments to accountability to our climate uh, promises, were in response to or were, were kind of building on some of the ambitious uh, promises that were made in the NDP and Green Party platforms. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was, given that the climate crisis is now such a big issue in Canadian politics, what do you think we can learn in other countries about how to mobilise voters and and have this um, be at the forefront of their minds in elections? I think a big lesson I've learned is a lot of the time it's about speaking to demographics of the voting population that perhaps aren't reached in in average um, communications around around the election. So a big part of the driving force in this election in Canada was that young people between the ages of 18 and 35 formed the largest voting bloc for the first time in Canadian history. And a lot of the efforts to raise the profile of climate change, to call call on voters to vote on this issue, um, was directed toward those young voters to make sure that they actually showed up on election day and cast their ballots for parties with strong climate plans. And the other side of it is, you know, we increasingly are seeing that people around the world, and this is very true in Canada as well, are experiencing some anxiety around their future, how they're going to keep their job, what their job's going to look like 10 years from now, how they're going to keep feeding their families. And that anxiety can often be weaponized by people who are against climate policies to scapegoat those climate policies for the discomfort, the um, challenges that are being faced in in people's everyday day lives. So we need to find ways to counter those uh, oversimplified, weaponized messages to bring people into this conversation and to say, as we do climate change action, we can do it in a way that actually makes your life better and strengthens your community. I'm thinking that there are other places in the world where pulling that kind of social element in the conversation will be necessary. Catherine, thank you so much for talking to us. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think there are genuine reasons to be cheerful from this week's episode. We live in a country where the climate emergency is very high up on voters' priorities. And if it wasn't for this inconvenient issue of Brexit, it'd be the number one for big chunks of the electorate. And not only that, we heard Catherine talking about how the demographics really made a difference in Canada, with young people making up the biggest chunk of the electorate. And that is something that could make a big difference here too, with all the new voter registrations uh, that we've seen. They're calling it the youth quake. And as ever, you can read more about this week's episode on our website. We'll have all the background materials up there for you. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got thoughts about this week's episode, tell us about the conversations you're having in the run-up to the election. How heavily does the climate emergency feature? All the ways to get in touch are uh, on the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Stephanie Hadley, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. Thank you for keeping me informed and mostly optimistic with your podcast. And I look forward to reading Chaos with Ed Miliband and longing for what might have been. In the wake of the Conservative Party's fact-check gate, how do we proceed in a time where politics takes its lead from the campaigning of Donald Trump that blatantly undermines truth and democracy and operates through active incitement of uncertainty and distrust in any media that challenges it? In the era of technology and social media, is this how politics will be from now on? How do we retain hope and faith in democracy? Also, I wanted to ask about the dead cat strategy that theorists are regularly applying to the Conservatives. Firstly, with Boris's bonkers story about his hobby of making model buses, thought to be a diversion of Google search results of Boris Bus away from £350 million for the NHS. And now some, like Matt Ford, have said that even CCHQ's disastrous stunt was a dead cat for diversion away from the possibility of a catastrophic performance by Johnson in the debate. What should we do in the face of a dead cat? Behaviour such as fact-check gates certainly cannot go unchallenged. So does it matter whether it was a diversionary tactic or not? Quite a lot to unpack there. But if uh, anything in it can provide a space for some discussion on the podcast, I'd love to get some insight and clarity and a few reasons to be, uh, you know... I do know. Yeah, I, d- I don't know what the answer is with that. It's certainly something I feel that we've skirted around the edges of in recent episodes, the fake news episode and the political advertising one. But yeah, please do share any thoughts you've got on that and we will uh, we will pass them on to Stephanie via the podcast. You'll get to hear them too. And this comes from Daniel Tebb, who's, uh, who sends an email with the subject line, TV censorship by a left-wing parent. Dear Ed and Jeff, I'm writing this after composing a tribute that I will be reading out at my dear mum's funeral, who sadly passed away recently. I'm sorry to, sorry to hear that. Um, he continues... It gave me lots of reasons to be cheerful remembering her life. During the 80s, my mum, Paddy Morrison, was elected as a Labour councillor in York. She was elected in a ward that became the first ever in York to have all-female councillors, which is something to make me proud. Anyway, the main reason for this is that I'm cheered up thinking about her censorship of TV in the 70s and 80s. I too, like Ed, uh, was only allowed to watch certain things although I always managed to get around it somehow. Examples of things that were not allowed are James Bond, sexist, Terry and June, middle class and obviously Tories, and the big one, just like Ed, ITV, as it promoted capitalism with all the adverts. Uh, He says, uh, anyway... um, I enjoy the podcast. I'd be interested in another look at the arts and how increasingly the top performers are from relatively richer backgrounds as funding is cut. Uh, I can provide more thoughts in this area if needed. Yeah, I think uh, an episode on sort of representation in general, or, or maybe a series of episodes around sort of representation and diversity and, you know, that sort of equality of opportunity would be interesting stuff to get into. Uh, anyway, th- thanks for writing in, Daniel. And once again, sorry for your loss. And if you would like to send in your thoughts, you can do it through the website or in uh, in all the ways that Gail's about to tell you about. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. So during the election campaign, we're inviting back some of our favourite people uh, that we've had on the podcast in the past to talk about. Highlights is probably stretching it, but uh, moments at least that they've enjoyed in the previous week's campaigning. And today we welcome back Jen Brister. Hello. Oh, hello. Hello, Jeff. Isn't that actually really nice to be back? And also, the last time I did this, I was we were in a tent, weren't we? We, we were. We'd, we'd gone camping. At Latitude. Yeah. It, yes. Um, bit of a bear pit, that one, wasn't it? I thought it went... 
No, no, I mean, it was enjoyable, but there were so many, oh, there was, so there was, many people there. There was a lot of, yeah, it was yeah. quite tense in the back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was two, we sort of looked outside and went, oh no, there's too many people. Let's, let's, let's scrap this. It, it felt like the, you know, if, if fire broke out, oh, it could have gone very poorly. Oh, there was, it was a massive fire hazard, of course. Yes. But this is all I'm ever thinking during the live shows. I like, I'm just I like thinking that there was that, so much warmth in the room for when you two came out. It was really lovely. And don't then get me I know wrong. that, Jeff, that, that entire time you were thinking about health and safety, which I was. is what I appreciate. Yeah, I, I enjoy getting out and doing these live shows. I know Ed does too, but <laughs> I just, you know, need to feel that there are, there are proper exits available. Well, to be fair, to yeah. be fair, it was a tent and there were flaps. You could have squeezed through one. True, true, true. Well, thank you for coming back. So, Jem, what have you enjoyed this week then? What's your, what's your first thing? Well, we were talking about this before we pressed record, but um, I've, it's quite hard to feel heartened by anything. But I have um, felt quite positive about the fact that um, so many more people have registered to vote since the general election was called. And I think it's over two million people, which is huge. It's incredible. I'm hoping that that is a, a, that we can take that as a positive sign and that people feel like they want to uh, that they want their vote to account whichever way they vote. And I'm hoping that whichever they, way they vote is the way that I'm voting. Fingers crossed. Hey, come on. Well, there's uh, been, seems, there's, but at the moment, it, it feels like it might be unlikely. There's been some suggestion. Uh, I think, in fact, Jeremy Corbyn did a, a tweet about this, that the re- Boris Johnson hasn't done a single register-to-vote message on social media, the reason being... He doesn't want new people exactly, voting. Yeah. He wants the people that always vote and will never vote any differently to just keep on voting. That's what he wants. How, how do you do with friends who say, I'm not going to vote? I, I Well, I really get on them. That's it. If you want to, uh, I mean, you don't want this leather in your face. And uh, so I think if they're, ha- if they're not intending to vote and they know me at all, they would probably never say that to me. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I have friends who are, who are saying that they're going to vote in a particular way because they're crossed with a particular party. And, th- and I, you know, have to tell them quite honestly how I feel about that. And that is, uh, you're an idiot. So vote the right way. I'm very pragmatic as a voter as well. I'll just do, I'll vote any way to get the Tories out. That is the way I'll vote. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering what my political position is. <laughs> if you are unable there. to read between, <laughs> between the lines, the lines. Jen, I really started quite vague. <laughs> I just went. There was I'm one bit where it. you're saying you may have a view on a particular po- political party. I thought this this is somebody who knows how to to walk the line of impartiality here, and then that's no. all, all out the all out the window. Yeah, sorry, I, I only maintained it for about a minute and a half. It was it was very impressive while it lasted. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. What's uh, what's the second thing that you've okay, enjoyed well, this week? The second thing I think is the fact that there's going to be a, lead, a leaders debate on climate crisis. So all the leaders, I think um, we're going to have the Greens, the Lib Dems, SNP, Labour Party, and, well, apparently uh, not the Conservatives are going to be the... Boris is snubbing this particular debate. Um, so Channel... And it's going to be on Channel 4, and Channel 4 have said that if he doesn't turn up, they will just have a place for him, but it'll be an empty chair where he would be, but... So I, I'm quite I'm quite delighted that they're doing Remember, that. Have I got news for you? Years ago, the first time they ever had a guest not turn up, they put a tub of lard. Was oh, it, who, who was, was that? Roy Hattersley. Roy Hattersley. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was Roy Hattersley. Yeah, yeah. and they just had like lard ridden up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so rather than just empty chair, Boris, what would you, you like? To, what would like you like to see in his place? A pound of self-raising flour and a really bad dream next to each other, and um, <laughs> just sort of like. <laughs> I just find it bizarre that that isn't how everybody will be voting. Is by which party is 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 going to try to save some, civilization, save our civilization, and combat climate change? I think that's a no brainer. But seemingly Brexit's still on the every, on the forefront of everyone's. I mean, I just I can't. The people people constantly voting against their interests is just it's just I find it just depressing. Do you enjoy a TV debate? I don't normally because I find the debates a bit depressing. And also, then I find myself looking on Twitter, and that's a wormhole you don't want to get onto. Um, But I think for this one, because it's specifically around climate change, I do really want to see what people are saying. And... um, and I think it's, I, I mean, oh God, I don't like Boris Johnson, but I, I think it's a shame he's not going to be there because I would love to see how he would cope with the, that kind of debate because I think the reason he's not there is because he hasn't got anything. There's nothing in the bag right. for him to actually throw into the ring and just say, oh, this is what the Conservative Party, oh, also, this I is wonder, our commitment. I wonder if there's a certain type of Conservative voter who wouldn't want him see uh, want to see him pandering to hippies by joining in with something like this so in a way he might benefit from that type of voter by by not engaging yeah i think the conservative party and i don't i, I mean like for a long time the tories were sort of 
there was a, a sort of minority of the sort of drys, the sort of right wing. Uh, and now I think they've just crept up and they've got, they've got getting a bigger and bigger majority within the party. I mean, the Tories used to be very much a one nation uh conservatives didn't they and and yeah, so sort of you know with john 19th major century. oh right right but no but even john major was a one nation tory to to yes you know he was quite pragmatic in the way that he viewed um particularly politically uh uh but and we've sort of moved ever steadily to the right and i think yeah i think i think he would upset the people that put him in power to go on that debate but i guess where else are those people going to go <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> just float out to sea, won't they? <laughs> All right, third thing this week, Jen. Labour has launched its radical manifesto, and I have—I think there's loads of incredible things that Jeremy Corbyn has included in this manifesto, irrespective of how you feel about him as an individual or Brexit. But look at the policies that he is um, suggesting, and I think there—you know—there's a lot in there that you think this is going to. Predominantly, this is going to benefit the majority of the people in this country. I don't really see why anyone. I mean, people seem to be livid about the very idea that they'll be free broadband. What's going on? I with don't that? understand why people are so cross about that. Yeah. It's a bit like when you, when we hear Americans being angry about about free healthcare. We're like, we don't want free healthcare. We want our freedom. <laughs> you know, you're like, it's like people going, I don't want free broadband. I want to pay seventy eight quid a month. You're like, okay, mate. Well, I mean, if you want to, you absolutely do. But I quite like to not pay for it. I mean, listen, that's make a huge difference to a lot of people anyway so aside have, from have you read the manifesto well i've got i've got like a few uh bullet points here which i mm. pulled out on uh, the old google um so this i think is radical and i think consecutive governments have ignored social housing and i think the the idea that labor has a commitment to build 150,000 new council and social homes within the next 5 years is incredible because we can all agree that we're we're in a housing crisis and uh you know a, a lot of uh, social housing went with the right to buy and and then no government has then created more social housing and we have people sleeping on street i mean i live in brighton there's an absolute crisis there and i and i love the idea that labor has a commitment to that uh, a living wage fantastic 10 pounds an hour that is what everybody should be getting i absolutely i'm uh, 100% behind that i know people will argue that it might affect small businesses but certainly we can but they said that about the the, the minimum wage well know. they did say that and, and 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 i can see how like if you're in a small business to go up to 10 pounds an hour would would pinch but certainly we can agree that huge corporations and companies like topshop and that they can afford to pay their workers 10 pounds an hour and i think at bare minimum that should be something that can be implemented let me tell you something whenever i am in the west end and i, I feel an urgent need to make a bowel movement i always, <laughs> always in go and shop. do it in top shop as <laughs> some kind of protest yeah well as long as you're i mean partly i don't leave any trace i don't leave any trace because i know it would be these cleaners who i don't know if they're making <laughs> no, a living true. wage or not but, yeah it's not you know, gonna be philip green I, is it? I feel like in some way i'm, I'm sticking it to philip <laughs> green to yeah. The man. Yeah, yeah. there you go wipe that up um <laughs> When people say, well, you know, we can't afford it because we are an austerity and the com- country is in a huge amount of debt, he has said that it will come out of the people that, that make the most money. So people are earning over £80,000 a year. Did you see the clip of the guy on Question I Time? I did, and really, my heart really bleeds for you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> boo, boo, hoo. <laughs> like, I don't think I'm in the top 5% isn't an argument. <laughs> yeah. No, I just don't. But I mean, it just says everything about the 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 reaction to modern politics, doesn't it? No, I just don't believe that's true. That just doesn't sound right to me. No, no, it's true. Look, here here are the the actual statistics and here are the actual facts. It just doesn't feel right to me. I mean, mean, he did, like, I mean, he he was kind of a a moron in in his way and clearly wrong. But there was like a scintilla of a point in there, I thought, when he was talking about, well, the richest people, they're, they're not earning. And it's something we've talked about a bit on the podcast in the past that, you know, perhaps a bigger problem is wealth and how you tax wealth rather than you tax earnings because that's not something we've really addressed yeah and i think that's right and particularly when i don't know a lot of people are self-employed and you know your earnings you know can fluctuate from year to year there is there is you know it's very taxation is very complex and the idea that because we live in a, a you know global economy you can move your money around 
So the very idea that you'll just be able to tax people with more money, they'll just move their money out of the country. So you, there has to be a, way, a means of doing it and a way of doing it that's a bit cleverer than that. And I think what you're saying is probably the, the right way to approach it. But I think the sentiment is correct that the people that are the wealthiest or that have the most should have to pay more tax. And I think that's reasonable. Jen, thank you so much. Can you give us anything you're looking forward to to finish? A reason to be cheerful? You think this, this manifesto <laughs> is, is a reason to be cheerful? Yeah, the you. manifesto. I mean, I'm sure it'll disappear into obscurity, but I, I, I'm, I, I'm going to be relatively optimistic that even though I think it's unlikely that the Labour Party will <laughs> win a majority, that uh, Boris Johnson will have a minority government and will really struggle to find anyone to create a coalition with, and then we'll have to have another election. Jen, have you got anything you need to, to be plugging while you're here? Well, while I'm here, I am on tour. <laughs> I and this is going, the show you took to the Edinburgh Fringe yeah so my uh, show Underprivilege and it goes uh, well I say I'm not on tour yet I'm, start, I'm on uh, on tour next year from February through to May and I'm all over the country and you can buy tickets online Jen Brister thank you so much thank you very much Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd and that was this week's episode. Thank you for listening. We are in the outro. Quick plug for our spin-off podcast that's going on throughout the election, Cheerful Election Daily with Owen Jones. Make sure you subscribe if you are subscribed. If you could rate and review it on iTunes, that really helps other people find it. So thank you. Uh, thanks to our guests this week, Alice Bell, Fatima Zara Ibrahim, Catherine A. Brew and uh, Jem Brister, Emma Corsham, Produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And our uh, artwork wasn't designed by Emily Power. Or uh, this from Anton Musker, who says, Dear Jeff and Ed, could I please get a congratulations for not making the artwork next week for Ollie Whiting? Ollie Whiting. Ollie originally put me on to listen to your podcast, but he has since moved countries. Your podcast is our common link. Uh, if so, thank you very much. If not, then also thank you very much. We're, we're, we're doing it. Here we are. Uh, Ollie Whiting, we salute you for not making the artwork which was made by Henry Cole. He's been invited in for wine and chocolates. I've been a pushy stage mum, and these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 